Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The word of the Lord. Hey everybody, good morning. Welcome. If I haven't met you in person, my name is Eric Kapoor. And I'm a pastor here at Trinity OC. So we are here in, I think, our eighth live stream service. And this morning, we are looking at our sermon series, which we've entitled Signs of Life. We're almost done. We have uh, this week and next week, and we'll be all finished. We're calling it Signs of Life, and we've called it uh, Signs of Life throughout uh, our time of looking at the letter of 1 Timothy, because um, 1 Timothy was written to address a church that had become pretty unhealthy. Now, just as we're paying attention, really close attention to the signs of our physical health. Now, we're thinking about our temperature. We're wondering if we have a cough or if we're feeling fatigued. Uh, just like we're clued in and paying attention to the vital signs of our physical health, 1 Timothy was written to help guide us into paying attention to the right signs, the right metrics of spiritual health. Timothy was Paul's friend. He was Paul's protege in ministry. And he was the pastor of a church that Paul had planted and, and a church that Paul dearly loved in Ephesus. This church had become very unhealthy. Paul heard about what was going on. He'd become aware of all kinds of symptoms of spiritual disease, and he wrote this letter to Timothy to help guide him into identifying, treating, and curing these signs of unhealth. Here in this passage, toward the end of the letter, we get another glimpse as to what was going on in this church community. Now look with me at verse 3, the beginning of this passage. If you have your Bible, or if you have uh, the bulletin printed out. Here we see that there were very influential people in the church. They were teachers teaching things that, Paul says here, were not in agreement with the sound teaching, or that could be translated the healthy teaching. Healthy because it's true and it accords with reality, and healthy because of the life that it produces, a spiritually healthy life. Paul says that there's teachers here in this community teaching things that are not in agreement with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes or leads to godliness, which is another way of saying, which leads to genuine, real, observable, 
of Christianity, the real deal. Now, in order to prevent the disease of this unhealthy teaching from spreading, Paul teaches Timothy what to look for. He says, Timothy, and here at the end of the letter, he says, here is something very important that you can look for. Here's how you can tell the difference between a real, growing faith in Jesus, the genuine thing, and an unhealthy, empty counterfeit. He says it's by looking for contentment. Contentment is a vital sign of a genuine faith. Paul says with it, with contentment, we experience the great gain of the Christian faith. But without it, as he says here at the end of the letter, people wander away from the faith and end up falling into many griefs. So this morning we're going to talk about contentment. I want to pause here for a question uh, as we begin. I just want to ask you a question, and it's a simple one. How content are you today? How content have you been this past week? Now, I realize this is kind of an unfair question to ask in our time. I mean, hello, we are in a global pandemic, a situation um, none of us could have ever imagined. We're sheltering in place. There's all kinds of job disruption. We're not able to gather as a church. There's uncertainty everywhere. There's a very bleak economic future. There's a new normal out there at some point that really, the more we learn about what it will be like, none of us are looking forward to it all that much. So contentment, really? Is that a fair question to ask? Now, I want to ask you to consider this morning some hard questions about contentment, specifically contentment in this time and all that we're facing. Here are these questions. Could it be that in such a difficult time as we are in, with so much taken away from us, so much we fear that we might lose, that we are in a better position, maybe than ever, to learn true contentment, the kind of contentment that Paul's talking about here? Could it be that what we think we need and can't wait to get again once all this is over, could it be that that is not what we need most right now, but that we have all that we need right now if we have faith in Jesus? I want you to think about those as we look at this text. It's probably helpful to start with a definition of contentment. I have a slide, a few slides that I want to share with you on this. Contentment. One of these definitions comes from way back in the day, about 400 years ago, from an author named Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote a great book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love his definition. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, I've got my own shorter definition, and I want to show you that slide next. Should be the next one. My definition, just taking uh, that definition as well as the rest of how the Bible talks about it, is this. A calm inward satisfaction in what I have been given by God. That's contentment. Now I have to say, 
in light of these definitions of contentment, in light of what this text uh, says to us, this was a very difficult message for me to prepare this week. At first, I was really excited. I thought, man, this is a message you all need to hear. Everyone needs to hear this message. But the more I got into this text, the more I got into this idea of contentment, the more that I looked at my own life, I realized how in my heart, in my life, there were all kinds of signs of discontentment, anxiety, frustration, irritability. I've been looking at the past. I've been looking ahead to the future, which is okay and has its place. But for me, it's been a way of not remaining in the present. So as I prepare this message, maybe you are in a similar, similar place to me where I'm at. You hear the word contentment and you say, maybe some other day, but not right now. Is it possible for us to be content? Paul says yes. He says yes, no matter what the circumstances, and he shows us the way. So if you're following along and taking notes, kids, get your kids bulletin. And uh, everyone else, if you have uh, the digital bulletin, you'll see the outline. Paul says, here's the way. First, he shows us how to stay discontent. Then he shows us how to be content. And then he shows us how to stay content. So first, what Paul says in this passage shows us how to stay discontent. And what he shows us is we have to look beyond the surface, beyond what's going on in our lives, our circumstances. We have to look within to get to the root cause. We've got to look inward. And Paul shows us how to get to the root here. Look at verses 3 through 5. Paul paints a picture of a very unhealthy approach to God, an approach that is out of agreement with the sound and healthy teaching about Jesus Christ, about genuine and real Christianity. He says, here is what it looks like. Let me paint the picture for you. And he gives this list of metrics and signs of spiritual disease. Look at verse 4, conceit. When we're conceited, full of ourselves, having a conceit about things we know nothing about, which is really like the worst kind of conceit. And I am guilty of that, feeling like we know something that we know nothing about. He goes on and says, an unhealthy interest in arguing, in controversy, envy, quarreling, slander, suspicion, which is thinking the worst of people, constant disagreement, all these signs of relational breakdown that tear apart relationships and communities. Here at the end, in verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us where all this conceit and pride and all this relational unhealth comes from. It comes from discontentment. It comes from discontentment. It comes from a discontentment that is rooted in a false belief. He uses the word imagine, a faulty way of thinking, a wrong imagination about the way things are. And what is it? The false belief at the root of all these things is, verse 5, imagining that godliness is a way to gain. He's saying this is it. This is the root cause of false belief. It's thinking that our relationship to God, our obedience to him, is the key word, key words, phrase, a way to. The ESV translation uses the phrase a means to. That our relationship with God, our obedience to him, is a way to, is a means to something else. Something we hope he gives us for what we give him. Paul says this is at the root of our discontent. 
Now let me illustrate this uh, by comparing this to our own relationships. Imagine this. Imagine it's it's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all all mothers. Uh, imagine this with our with our mothers. Um, if you wrote a card to your mom, if you um, if you did that today and sent it to them, and you said, "Here, here is all the things that I have gained from you. You did my laundry. You fed me. You drove me everywhere. You did all these things, and that is what I'm so thankful for you." for and that that goes so far and that's good but what does a mom really want to hear does a mom really want to hear here's what uh, our relationship is all about everything that you gave me what would get to the heart of a mom would be a card that says what I've gained most in our relationship is you I've gained you not what I can get from you or think of it between spouses if uh if you were dating someone, interested in someone, and you were thinking about a long-term future, and they said, well, what, they ask you this question, a dangerous question, what do you hope to gain from this relationship? And your response was, well, I hope to get more security because you have a good job and a good financial prospects for your future. That there will be someone to help cook and clean for me. There is someone who will be there for physical intimacy for me. That would not be a good answer. That's just saying, here's what I hope to gain everything from you the right answer is what i most hope to gain in this relationship is you the same thing is at work here in what paul has to say in this false approach to god the false belief at the heart of the religious approach to god is we live for god to get from god but the belief at the heart of christianity is verse six godliness with contentment is great gain not a means to not a way to the relationship we have with god is in itself great gain christianity teaches we live for god for god now i want to show you in another slide how this relates to our, our contentment To the extent that we approach God in this way that Paul is talking about, that our godliness, our obedience is a means to an end, a way to something else, something we think will give us contentment, we will just stay content. Let's see if we can go back a couple slides, David. If it's not there, that's okay. Maybe I didn't put it there. Okay. Let me repeat that. To the extent we approach God or godliness and obedience as a means to an end, as a way to something else that we think will give us contentment, Paul is saying we will just stay discontent. And all our religious and spiritual efforts will make us more and more discontent if we treat God as something to use to get what we really want out of life. Now here's the question. How can we tell if that belief is somewhere inside of us? Most of us would not say, this is how I think about God. I just use him to get what I want. We realize that God, being God, cannot be treated that way. But is that belief somewhere in our hearts? One of the main ways to look for this belief residing somewhere in our hearts is what happens inside us when our circumstances don't turn out the way we want or when they change for the worse. So right now, 
probably nobody's circumstances are turning out the way that they want. And in some way, they're turning out and they are for the worse. And so the question is, what's happening inside? Is there contentment or is there frustration with God and with other people? Instead of a calm inward satisfaction with what God has given, is there a restless dissatisfaction over what God has not given you? That can turn into anger with God, which often shows itself in envy, one of the things Paul lists here. God, why does that person have that? Why is he doing that? Why does she have that? And we're dealing with this. Underneath that is an anger with God. Or it can often show itself in anger and frustration with other people, which is all over the list of signs of spiritual unhealth that Paul lists here. Underneath that anger is often the belief, God, you owe me better for what I have done. Paul shows us here another way to get to the root of our discontent. He's saying our false beliefs about God are tightly connected to another set of false beliefs, beliefs about money. Now, when we see Paul say things like using God for material gain, love of money, wanting to be rich, we might think to ourselves, I'm not that way. I don't love money. I don't want to be so rich. I don't use God for material gain. I know those things don't give lasting happiness. Now, at one level, uh, this speaks, what Paul is saying here, speaks to a form of religion and religious leaders that are very open and blatant about using the religion or spirituality to make money themselves or promise prosperity to other people who follow their teaching. Now, let me share quickly, personally, how this has hit home to me. This is still out there, and Paul is speaking to this. Unfortunately, somebody has been impersonating me via email, emailing our staff and emailing our missions partners, and maybe some of you with a fake email address has my picture, he's signing the emails as if he is me. Why? Why is this happening? Well, he's trying to get somebody to send him money. I'm assuming it's a him, I don't know. So here's a PSA, uh, public service announcement in this illustration. If you receive an email from me with bad grammar that says, I need assistance from you, Send me a discreet email because I am in a prayer meeting right now. Do not reply to that email. Do not send money. Report it as spam and phishing. Now, this is somebody who is blatantly using religion to try and get money. It still happens. But for most of us, and I think for those whom Paul is talking about, it is much more subtle. And we are not off the hook. What Paul says here is meant to get us to ask ourselves questions about our relationship to money that are uncomfortable for all of us. What Paul says here is very nuanced. He doesn't say money is evil. He doesn't say riches are bad or material things are bad because they're not. And the Bible doesn't teach that. He says it is the love of money, the desire to be rich. That is what leads someone into deep discontentment. Now, why would somebody love money? Or why, why do we want to be rich? Well, let's imagine this. Would you imagine this with me? Imagine having more money. Can you do that? <laughs> what is it that you imagine? Say uh, you knew that $1 million was coming your way in the mail today. It was coming. You knew it was coming. Do you imagine yourself uh, taking that money, taking, taking the, uh, the check to the bank and getting all the cash and just filling a swimming pool with money and just saying, I love you money, and just swimming in the pool of money? 
No. <laughs> I don't think anybody's imagining that. What you imagine is the circumstances that that money will give to you. You imagine the stuff you'll get, the stuff you'll get to do. You imagine the feeling of security that you'll have because of it. And maybe you imagine the status that you'll achieve because you have more wealth. The point is this, more money, we believe, will give us more power over our circumstances. And it does, and it will. But the belief underneath that is that those circumstances will give us contentment. It's not money or things or wealth that is the problem. It is the belief that money will give us the circumstances that will make us content. And so we look to money for the power to get what God has not given to us. And in this way, money becomes an idol or a substitute for God, which is why Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money at the same time. Application thought for many of us. And in the coming days, uh, for us, this could be true of us now, with much of our economy shut down, with unemployment at record levels, with so much financial uncertainty, our circumstances and our finances will change. Our beliefs about what money will bring to us will be tested. Our belief about God and what our relationship with Him is all about will be tested. We will be tempted to try to use God to get the circumstances we want. We will be tempted to look to money as our God to protect or change our circumstances. And so, friends, in this text, the clear statement to us that's hard but we must hear is that if we follow those temptations, we will only remain and become more discontent. So that's the first point, how to stay discontent. But Paul says there's a way to be content. In verses 6 through 10, Paul tells Timothy, godliness, a genuine, real, authentic, growing faith in Jesus can bring contentment. In verse 6, Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. The message paraphrase written by Eugene Peterson says it like this, a devout life does bring wealth, but it's the rich simplicity of being yourself before God. That sounds so great. It's a great paraphrase. This calm inward satisfaction in what I have been given by God. Is this possible even now? How? Well, Paul tells us by showing us where great gain is found and how we get it. Now, here is the slide that I want to share with you. Paul says here in this text that contentment is not a matter of getting something we don't have. Let's go to the previous slide. Or of being something we are not. Or of doing something we aren't doing. It's not a matter of changing our circumstances at all. It's a matter of becoming more aware of all we already have been given in Christ by grace. So Christian contentment is not found in changing our circumstances or in detaching from our circumstances like a stoic. Contentment is found in changing our interpretation of our circumstances. Interpreting all our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. The gospel 
of grace. How does that work? Well, when we look to the grace that we've been given, when we look to the gospel in the cross, what we see is the hard truth about the circumstances that we deserve because of our sin, because of our looking for our happiness and our contentment in anywhere but God. We see on the cross where that leads. We deserve the loss of everything that's been given to us by God, which is what Jesus experienced. But we see even brighter and clearer. In the cross, we see the wonderful truth of what we gain. Jesus lost his life so that we could gain life. Jesus took these circumstances that we deserve to give us himself. So we see the love of God. God gives us not what we want, but what we really need himself. And in the cross, not only do we see the love of God, we see the great wisdom of God, his mysterious wisdom, often mysterious to us. He was able to make the worst circumstances possible, work out the greatest good from these worst circumstances. That is the great wisdom of God we see in the cross. Now what we often do, we often fall into interpreting God through our circumstances. If things are not going well, not going according to our plan, we say, God can't be loving, he can't be gracious, he must not be happy with me, he isn't wise. But the cross shows us that it, God loves us enough to take the worst circumstances possible for us. And he is wise enough to bring the best circumstances out of this, then we can learn to say, in the words of the great hymn writer John Newton, everything is needful that he sends, nothing is, nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends, nothing can be needful that he withholds. Now we can move to that next slide, looking again at Hebrews 3, verse 5. The author of Hebrews says, we already read it in our liturgy, be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, if nothing can take Jesus from me, what can any circumstances take from me? That's learning to interpret all of our circumstances, whatever they may be, through the lens of the gospel of grace. When we do this, we're able to accept the two realities of life that Paul gives us here. These are hard realities of life that we don't like to accept. We're too afraid to accept, apart from what we have in Christ. Verse 7 and verse 8, these are kind of proverbial statements Paul gives. One is the difference between what we can hold on to and what we must all let go of. Verse 7 Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. It's probably a paraphrase of Job 121, where Job, after suffering so much, after his circumstances threatening to undo everything in his life, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul's saying, we don't deserve anything but God gives us everything we need 
and more. And when he takes something away, he can be trusted. And in the end, we must let go of everything, all our circumstances. But what we can hold on to is the promise that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. He will lead us into eternal life. That's the first hard reality. The second one is in verse 8. The difference between what we really need and what we want. Verse 8. If we have food and clothing, which likely includes shelter, Paul says we will be content with these. Now there is a lot God gives us that we don't need. For all of us, he gives us more than just food and clothing and shelter. Paul says receive it all with thanksgiving. He says enjoy it in chapter 6. But, Remember the difference between what you really need and what you want. In our consumerist culture, this is so hard to live by this reality. Our entire culture, our entire economic system is designed and built to feed and foster as much discontent as possible. The entire world of marketing is meant to go after your contentment and destroy it, right? You don't have what you need. You need this. You need this product. If you don't have it, you will never be content. But Paul is telling us, if we remember and interpret our circumstances in light of the gospel, we can remember we have what we really need. And when God sends things that we want, we can rejoice and be thankful. When we don't have the things that we want, we can rejoice and be thankful. Friends, we are in a test of contentment right now. No one could imagine the circumstances we find ourselves in collectively, and for you, you couldn't have imagined it personally in your life. Sometimes when God gives us the circumstances that we want, we are still discontent. That's the lesson of getting what we want, the circumstances we want. But we're in a place where we're learning the lesson of what happens when God allows circumstances we don't want. In one of his other letters, uh, Philippians, the Apostle Paul says he learned these lessons through hard circumstances. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Sometimes that verse is used to talk about doing great things, being very productive, accomplishing our dreams. But in the context, Paul is using this verse, he's saying these things about the strength to be content. The strength to be content when we realize what we dreamed of doesn't give us contentment. And the strength to be content when our circumstances are so hard, we don't know if we can ever find contentment again. Paul says, we learn it. So take heart, friends. It's not an automatic lesson. It's not an easy lesson. But God uses our circumstances to teach us contentment. Lastly, now, I want to close by looking at how we stay content. Contentment is not something we get. We get to this place and we just stay there forever. 
it requires constant monitoring. I want you to look with me at verse 9. And, and you can move to the next slide. I want to share four quick things. We want to avoid the misunderstanding first before we get to verse 9. I won't be able to unpack all these things, but it's very important when we're talking about contentment that we understand what it doesn't mean. Contentment doesn't mean we don't pursue change and growth or even changes in our circumstances, but we pursue these things from a place of contentment for all that we have been given in Christ, our identity in him. He himself, that he will never forsake us, even when we don't grow, even though we, when we don't change as we ought. Contentment doesn't mean that we don't feel or acknowledge difficult emotions. doesn't mean we're stoics. We hold these emotions as we lean into contentment. We realize, well, God, in giving me the circumstances he's given me, is not calling me to shut down my heart. But we see throughout the Bible, in the Psalms, many places, that contentment is arrived upon by expressing ourselves honestly to God. And contentment, thirdly, doesn't mean we, we don't cry out to God in adversity and ask him to help or change things. And we're not content um, in, in, into a quietism. We can call upon God to change things, but again, that comes from a place of what we have been given in Christ. And lastly, contentment doesn't mean we accept injustices in the world. Clearly, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're asking for God to bring his heavenly justice into our earth of injustice. So avoid misunderstanding. Secondly, heed the warning. Now let's look at verse 9. Paul has this sequence that he lays out here. He says, the way that temptation, uh, the way that the temptation of discontent comes upon us is first there's the temptation, he says, and then he says uh, there's the trap. Those who want to be rich fall in temptation, then a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, and they get plunged into ruin and destruction. There's temptation, there's the trap, and then there's the plunge. He's warning us that we can lose dis dis our, our contentment very easily. And discontent is a serious disease of the soul that left untreated leads to, verse 10, ruin, destruction, piercing yourself. It's a very graphic image, impaling yourself with grief, wandering away from the faith and disillusionment because, well, God never gave me what I thought I deserved. He never, thought, he never gave me what I thought I would gain in this relationship, what I expected from him. We might say, I agree with that, but, um, you know, I think based on what Paul says here, I, I'm an exception, um, that, that warning doesn't apply to me. And I always thought verse 9 just was such, <laughs> was such an important verse, but a very ignored verse in the Bible. One of the most ignored verses of all. Verse 9 says, but those who want to be rich fall in temptation, in trap, and can be plunged into ruin. Now, if I asked you, if I asked anyone, a Christian, a very mature Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for many years, if I said, do you want to be rich? Almost all of us would say, sure, yes, I do. Why? Because I believe I'm an exception to the temptation, the trap, and the plunge. You know, if I just had a little bit more, if I just could have these circumstances changing, I'd be happy and content. Friends, I just say in light of this text, he'd... Heed the warning. This applies to us all. Two final things. And I think these two things, I'll close with these, really 
apply to our current situation. If contentment means a calm inward satisfaction in what I've been given by God, I want you to consider two things that God is giving us in this current situation and how we might receive these things. How might we receive the gift of less? Less time, maybe less resources, less of what we want to do. Um, there's all kinds of things that we have had to cut back on that we've lost that we don't have. Thomas Watson in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, written long ago, he said this, be content. If God dams up our outward comforts, it is that the stream of our love may run faster to him. Sometimes, as Paul says, we learn contentment in seasons of want so that we could be able to say, to say from the depths of our heart, the Lord is my shepherd. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And lastly, a gift that God is giving us in this season is the gift of limits. And I want to do uh, one more last uh, imagination experiment with you. Imagine uh, the life circumstances right now that would make you the most content, that, give you, that would give you this deep inward satisfaction. Can you picture these life circumstances? What would it be like? And let me ask you, did any of you picture your current circumstances right now? your current life circumstances. Most of us imagine something else, some other set of circumstances. The contentment calls us to a new imagination based on the reality of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. What God wants to give me, here's, what, here's this new imagination, what God wants to give me in my current life, in my current circumstances is better, is better than anything I think I could get from my imagined circumstances. A final quote, this one's from Ronald Roheiser. It's in your reflection quotes. He says, there is rich spirituality in these principles, these principles of limits. Stay inside your commitments, be faithful. Your place of work is a seminary. Your work is a sacrament. Your family is a monastery. Your home is a sanctuary. Stay inside them, shelter in place. Don't betray them. Learn what they are teaching you without constantly looking for life elsewhere and without constantly believing God is elsewhere. Friends, could it be in such a difficult time where so much has been taken from us that we are in a better position than ever to learn true contentment? Could it be that what we think we need, that we can't wait to have when all this is over, is not what we need right now, but what we need we already have in Jesus? Think about that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for the promise that you have given to us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And though it's very hard for us in this current season, I pray for all of us. I pray for my own heart, which has been struggling with so much discontentment and all the hearts of those who are listening. Lord, that you would reframe our thinking and reframe our hearts in order to be able to receive the gift of what you are doing in our lives now and in order to see all that we have already been given in Jesus. 
We know sometimes you use hard circumstances to be our teacher. May we be good students. And as we struggle, we pray for your compassion and your mercy. But I ask that you would lead us deeper and further into the great game of true contentment that is found in your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. At this time in our service, we're going to move into a time of prayer. Normally, if we were all together, if we were worshiping in the same building, if we were in each other's presence, which I can't wait to one day do again with all of you, we would be celebrating the Lord's Supper. We'd be sharing in a meal together. The meal that Jesus gave to us to remember him. The meal that Jesus gave to us in order to feed us with the grace that we need to remind us of what we need to be reminded of in order to be content, to be satisfied, to come back to a place of calm, inward stillness because of all that Jesus has given to us, his very life. And it is tragic and it is difficult and we lament the fact that we cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper at this time. And so in lieu of celebrating the supper together. Would you join me in this prayer? It's printed for you in your digital bulletin. O oh Lord, you have promised that you are with us always. I thank you, Father, that by your Spirit, Jesus Christ the Son dwells in our hearts by faith. We grieve, however, that this present trouble has kept us from his presence in a special and sacred way, a presence by means of the holy sacrament that the Lord Jesus himself instituted for us and for our faith. How long, O oh Lord? We remember that the Lord has said he will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it new together with us in his Father's kingdom. In our own way, we too find that we must presently abstain for the sake of our brothers and sisters as we await the time our family here can once more keep the feast. How long, O oh Lord? Until that time comes, preserve, O Lord, our faith, which is prone to grow feeble and faint under such adversity. May your grace be sufficient for us, and may it bridge not only the distance we currently face from your presence in communion, but also the painful distance we feel as we are parted from fellowship with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Have mercy on us and help us, O Lord, for we ask this in the name and pray this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.